let's, uh, let's turn now to the book of Micah. Micah is one of the minor prophets. Uh, if you're looking in one of the Bibles that are provided there, it's on, we're going to be on page uh, 1371. The, passage, the main passage is also printed in the handout. Let me read that and, uh, and then pray and I'll explain to you why we're in Micah today. This is God's Word. Micah chapter 4, verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, Neither shall they learn war any more, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken, for all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. It in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, as we hear your voice, the words of the prophet, as the Apostle Peter said, that no prophet spoke on his own accord, but was led by you, by your Holy Spirit. May we hear your words speaking to us, and may they go deep into our lives, that we would hear, understand, respond and be encouraged by the hope that you have promised your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Why go back to the minor prophets in the season of Advent, the season of Christmas? Is it not a season of joy and of hope, of love? Those familiar Advent themes that maybe you've seen hung in Christmas uh, sanctuaries, Christmas decorated sanctuaries. Christmas is a celebration season, the season where we get together with family and friends, where we give gifts and receive gifts and have parties and enjoy life. But Christmas is also a season that reminds us of much pain in our life. 
hopes and dreams unrealized flood back in our minds and many of us experience hurt. Christmas is a busy season, increasingly so, with all kinds of expectations and busy schedules. Anxiety inducing. Christmas, as we said last week, is not like Easter where we know the date when Jesus, is, uh, Jesus was uh, crucified and, and rose from the dead, at least the uh, time of year. If not, the specific date is in some question in terms of the year. But the time of year is known with Christmas. At some point along the way, they, they said, well, we're going to celebrate it on December 25th. And we, we looked at how it's significant that the celebration is in a season of darkness, where darkness is increasing every day right up to essentially the day of Christmas, the, the shortest amount of light in any day in the year each year. Darkness is a theme of Advent. The word Advent means coming. And the expectation of a Messiah who would come and deliver the people out of darkness. Those who dwelt in a land of darkness have seen a great light, says about Jesus. Darkness And light shining into darkness is the theme of Advent. Is this longing expectation? And for us to experience that type of hurt and longing and and anxiety and and maybe even a feeling of oppression at times, in many ways, helps us to identify with those who lived in the, the generations leading up to the coming of Christ. And the generations leading up to the coming of Christ can be best described by the words of the prophets. The prophets speak of difficulty and darkness. Many of them, Micah speaks of it earlier in the book of of. The darkness had had come into the land, or at least prophesying the darkness would come into the land and calling out some of the darkness. And we'll look at a little bit of that today. And he promised that light would enter in. These little light shining, little pieces of light shining into the darkness are scattered throughout the prophets. But the prophets are are large and, and massive. And if any of you have tried or, or, or read uh, through the Bible in, in various settings, you know that when you get to the prophets, they're, 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 uh, they're burdensome. They're weighty. They're difficult to read because they involve a lot of judgment, calling people out of darkness, calling to respond. But scattered throughout all of the prophets, are always these beams of light. Signs of hope. That God doesn't speak judgment. God doesn't speak warning. God doesn't speak the difficult words ever without accompanying it with with tangible signs of His love and faithfulness. Of the hope that the people have, oftentimes if they return to God. The hope that the people have 
also in God sovereignly providing for his people and coming back to them time and time again and calling them and reminding them of his steadfast love. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 has one of these beacons of light that points us to this Christmas celebration. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. The image that immediately springs to mind is that of the the wise men following the star that leads them to the town of Bethlehem. The place that wasn't unfamiliar to people. It was a small village, but it was famous in the nation of Israel because it was the place where King David was from. The archetype of a king who was faithful and, and, and just and was a man after God's own heart. He had m- many failings as well. But he was the, the, the hope that the people looked back to. One like him would come again and deliver the people out of this darkness. And he would promise them that he would be a faithful, righteous, just king. A king who, looking at verse chapter 5 here, what I just read, is both from ancient days, meaning God himself, the second person of the Trinity who existed from eternity, but also one who's born. The incarnate God born as a baby. Jesus himself. The prophets are shining these small bits of light that we would see and hope in something that was incomprehensible to the people. How could it be both? In many ways, the people couldn't understand the fulfillment of this prophecy that would be fulfilled in Christ. Especially when Micah's writing 750 years prior to Christ's birth, roughly. It helps to have some idea of what time frame is, is going on in this. King David, uh, in round numbers, rounded to 500s, roughly 1,000 years before Christ. The people of Israel, the nation of Judah, being conquered, deported from their land, totally destroyed roughly 500 years before Christ. And the prophet Micah speaking right in the middle of that. During a time of relative prosperity among the people. Kings were continuing to rule. By this time the nation had divided in two. David and Solomon ruled over a united nation. Descendants of Jacob. 
But after Solomon, the nation divided and 11 of the tribes, or 10, rough, 10 or 11 of the tribes, separated off and called themselves Israel, the northern kingdom. And the southern kingdom was Judah and part of Simeon. And they called themselves Judah. And the descendant of David stayed on the throne in Judah. Now God gave his people this promise that he would be with them and be their defender. And the people heard that promise and they identified with it and they counted on it, depended on it. They were a small nation, a small people. They had no great strength, not a world superpower. But they were surrounded by world superpowers like Egypt and Assyria. And eventually more raised up in the powers transition to the point where Babylon, Persia, arose as superpowers. And yet in the midst of these superpowers, God defended his people and kept their enemies at bay miraculously delivered them from various military assaults on the people, on the nation. But in the midst of all this, there was an insidious kind of darkness that kept creeping, creeping in on the people. Depending on God's protection and provision, people experienced material prosperity. See, military security, physical security, allows for material prosperity. It's a blessing that comes to God's people oftentimes when they're faithful. Not always, but oftentimes. But this insidious darkness that entered in with those people in those communities came with the material prosperity as those who were the most powerful, the most wealthy, controlled situations and more and more used and abused others in hoarding the wealth, in building their wealth and power on the shoulders of others, And God sent his prophets over and over to speak warnings into these societies that were acting unjustly. And Micah was one of the primary, though he's short in his writing, primary prophets against this type of abuse. The book of Micah opens with these words, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. His treading is His judgment. I've heard that word a few times in various readings. Even in, I, I believe, the uh, prophecy, the poem of Zechariah, God will come and tread upon the earth in his judgment. It was a hope that those who have experienced oppression have always looked to. When those who are judges over the people act unjustly, 
and declare some guilty or innocent who are not innocent or guilty. The people looked to God to bring justice, and that desire, that longing, was there among the people who were being oppressed. Each of us should desire justice. And yet, and yet this is a double-edged sword because each of us knows that if God brings his justice, that even if we may be less guilty than the person beside us, we still, we still in our heart of hearts know that we deserve that justice as well. Not in a sense that God declares us innocent, but that God would declare us guilty. For abusing other people. For rejecting God himself. For not being faithful to the things that God has called us to. For desiring the things that God hasn't given us and festering or fostering covetousness and envy in our hearts. <clears throat> For lusting after those things, whether they're material or physical uh, or, or even recognition that God hasn't given us. You see, we can long for justice at the same time of being afraid of justice. And we need to have that, that two-edged sword always in our mind because oftentimes we become numb to a desiring of justice because we fear what justice would mean for us. And so we lower our standards. We lower the standards we expect of other people. We approach the holiday season as just a time to ignore the wrongs that have been done against us and probably sometimes the wrongs that we've done against other people. It's good to overlook things, but oftentimes we overlook them to the point that they grow into uncontrollable beasts, major fissures in relationships. For when wrongdoing is ignored, it will never sit idly by or be some type of domestic house pet that we can handle. When our sins are, are discounted or underestimated, we will always have a propensity to walk away from the Lord's call to even hate the prophets who bring the words of warning. In your place today, when you hear God's voice, what's your response? The writer of Hebrews says, today if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. Quoting, uh, quoting the Old Testament there, don't harden your hearts. When you hear the words of God's judgment, what's your response? Is it to recoil? Is it to go and hide? Is it to hear and to heed?
the prophets are a difficult book to go back to because they call us to action. They call us to honesty. They remind us of these three great truths that pastor, scholar James Montgomery Boyce pointed out as he studied the minor prophets and taught on them. First, of God's sovereignty. Over and over again, we see that God is in control and the director, not just of individual lives or thoughts or salvation for individuals, but of whole armies. The Assyrians, the Babylonians were at the beck and call of God. They could do nothing against God's people unless God enabled them and called them to do it. And he eventually does in withdrawing his physical protection from the people and bringing those armies against the northern kingdom as the Assyrians and then later the southern kingdom by the Babylonians. God's sovereign hand is at work to bring justice and to protect as well as to remove his protection, but always with a purpose. And that is to redeem a people for himself. To restore the people. That gets at the second two points, and those are these oftentimes at odds points that James Boyce points out. And that is, the second one is God's holiness is always in display in the prophets. And we have a trouble with this one. We have trouble with this one because when we see holiness, God explains we can't handle it. God doesn't allow Moses to look directly on him because if he did, he would fall dead in seeing his holiness. The holiness of God is too much for sinful humans to behold. And yet, and yet God holds out his holiness as something that we should desire and aspire to. Reminding us that that is how he made us to be like him, image bearers in his holiness. And we face this conundrum of knowing that we can't attain to that on our own, but knowing that expectation is there. And the passage we read from chapter 4 today is like a test of whether we've lost the hope in that holiness. Because the only way The only way that that vision can be attained where the people would beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation not lifting up sword against nation and not studying war anymore. And each person living under his own vine and under his own fig tree. The only way that can happen is found at the beginning of verse 3 that God would judge between the peoples and decide for the peoples. The only way it can happen is if holiness is pervasive on the whole face of the earth. And the injustice and the wrongdoing and the unrighteousness is completely removed. Have Have you lost hope in that promise? Do you still desire that more than anything else? It's kind of a childlike desire. In many ways it is, and we want to go back to it, but but we we get numb to it because of our experiences in life. (coughs) And we wonder, how long, O Lord, 
until you will bring your justice. So the Psalms are full of that cry. How long, O oh Lord, until this would happen and we grow impatient? But the prophets hold out that vision for us to see and to long for and to remind us if you've lost that vision. You've lost something of who God is in your relationship with God. Or maybe you're in a different place. You're trying to get that vision through a way other than justice itself. It's saying, if I can just be gracious enough to enough people, eventually everybody's going to be gracious enough to everybody else, and we're going to achieve this perfection. And not that grace isn't something that we should aspire to, but to believe that that grace will ultimately bring justice. That is our grace, our ability to express grace to other people, to believe that that will ultimately bring justice is short-sighted. As is the hope that many people have gone down to try to politically make this stuff happen. Most tragically, in the institution of communism in the Soviet Union, that looked in a twisted way to this passage and having the swords beat into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks and desiring to force people's hearts to this vision, killing millions in the process. Even in our own political aspirations and the hope of this happening in our country by some type of political process is short-sighted and will end in tragedy if we allow for our hope to end in that kind of political power and institution. But the only way for holiness to pervasively prevail over all of the earth is for God to bring His holiness to this earth. And He could do it either by wiping everybody out in His justice, in His power, which He could do, or He could do it by Joyce's third point, always present in the prophets, and that is his loving kindness, his faithfulness, his mercy. That word that we've looked at so often in the Hebrew is chesed, that is sometimes translated mercy, sometimes translated kindness, oftentimes in the ESV translation that we use all the time, I believe, is translated steadfast love. It's his consistent care for his people when we are inconsistent. It's God's faithfulness to bring justice that is always accompanied by a gracious extension of an offer of forgiveness. The hope of the prophets, the hope of the prophets was not just in God's justice but in the accompanying grace that would bring many people back to God. Now Micah opens his letter, his prophecy, warning against these wrongdoings. He says, where were these wrongdoings centered? 
He said they were centered in two places, Samaria and Jerusalem. Samaria and Jerusalem. These were the capital cities of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The injustices flowed out of the centers of power. And Micah is prophesying hundreds of years before these places of power would fall, but warning them, warning them that this was their destination. Chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion, that is Jerusalem, shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. God's judgment would come on those who abused the power and didn't bring the gracious gracious salvation to all those who were suffering. And it wasn't just those who were oppressed in Jerusalem and in Samaria and in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom. The justice and mercy that God desired and promised that he would bring from Jerusalem was promised to all the nations. God's vision was not small. And his plan was for all the nations. And that verse 12, chapter 3, verse 12, is immediately before what we hear the words of hope that we read earlier that begin in chapter 4, verse 1. That though this city would be plowed and destroyed, which it is by Babylon, every stone of the temple taken out and destroyed, even though that judgment comes, comes on that city, it will come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. That is, Jerusalem that sits on Mount Zion will be established as the highest of mountains, lifted up above all of the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And you say, When, was, when is this going to happen? And we say, It already has. already has when after Jesus dies and is resurrected we read about it in Acts chapter 2 the people from all kinds of nations have gathered into the city of Jerusalem and the apostles start to speak in tongues what are those tongues they're foreign languages understandable foreign languages so that the nations can hear the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, that in Him, in Him, salvation has come to the ends of the world, the nations, from the city of Jerusalem. Now the image of Mountains being raised up and lowered or valleys being raised up and made flat is throughout the prophets and throughout the scriptures. And it's helpful to understand that this is never meant to be a, 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 a physical reality. I love the mountains and God delights in the beauty of the mountains. But that image 
of mountains being raised up is always meant to describe the power of the, the thing that comes from the place. And so some people have tried to say, well, well uh, Mount Zion is going to be higher than, um, than Mount Everest. But what's higher than Mount Everest is the power that is displayed and extended and communicated to the ends of the earth that Jesus has worked salvation for the ends of the earth in defeating sin and death in his, in his death and resurrection. And the corresponding image of mountains being brought down and valleys being raised up, it always has this this important significance. You see, mountains were lowered and and valleys raised up for the purpose in the ancient world, and still today in a lot of places, for building roads, safe roads. Roads that people could travel on without fear of, of falling into pits, or the treacherousness of ascending over rocky crag uh, type of areas. The notion of a road being smooth is oftentimes used to to communicate when a king is coming to a place. They they build a road, they raise up the valleys, they lower down some mountains to make a straight path, a safe path for a king to enter into the place. And the image of Raising up valleys and lowering mountains. And the scriptures is always pointing us to the type of road that we are constantly building or destroying or ignoring in our own hearts. That God can come into our lives and change us and transform us. See, to raise up valleys and to lower down mountains means that we respond to God's prophets with a soft heart. When we're convicted of our sin, we don't run away from it. We don't harden our hearts, but we, we say, God, I need you. I want you. It's the voice of John the Baptist calling out in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord into your heart in this Advent season. The light shines in the darkness. It's a mixture of all kinds of metaphors, but all of them are pointing to the same thing. The darkness has not overtaken it. Christ is powerful. And yet the call to each of us during this season is to be aware of the light, to be aware of the king coming into the city, to be aware of the call to us to be building a road in our heart that receives both his warnings and even more powerfully his salvation. The right response for us as a people is to pursue justice and mercy, to walk humbly with our God. It's the most familiar passage probably for most of you in Micah. 6, beginning with verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Look at the footnote for kindness there. It is the word has said. It is God's steadfast love to love God's steadfast love and to walk humbly with him. That's the call of Advent and Christmas. Let's pray. Oh Jesus, we we come to you in worship as the Magi did to that little child carrying the hopes of the world and lifting our fears. We come to you, Jesus, as the righteous one who lived as we should have lived and died the death we should have died. We come to you, Jesus, as the conqueror over sin and death, who descended into death itself that we would not see decay but would be raised up with you. And we come to you, Jesus, as the all-powerful all King of all of creation, knowing that you are sovereign over everything and desiring that you would rule in our hearts and lives, shining as light into our lives during this Christmas season, this month, and also using us as lights to a longing, hurting, suffering world. Come, Lord Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen.